For December 10th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 232. Are you not edged? Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast, the bleeding edge of America, the cultural capital of the world, Los Angeles, California, Hollywood, Tinseltown, I'm Matt Rather. And I, uh, I opened a brand new box of Trader Joe's wine tonight. <laughs> and before we get to the question of the week, we have a sponsor, which is us, as it has been these last weeks. <laughs> Thanks, us. Yeah, we are awesome. Around the holidays, when gift giving and online shopping is uh, less a task uh, than a way of life, um, we bring to the fore our uh, Amazon affiliate link. And if you click through to buy your Christmas gifts from Amazon through the link on Overthinking It, uh, it's in the sidebar, uh, at the very bottom of the sidebar on the homepage of Overthinking It. And, uh, and we've also put in a, a, a gift guide that's on the homepage of Overthinking It. If you uh, go to Amazon through those links, anything you buy in that session will generate a small kickback, a little, a little uh, referral fee, they call it, for overthinking it. Though you can use it the whole year round, we focus on it uh, at the end of the year, and you can find it on the homepage of uh, overthinkingit.com. Now... When you go to the homepage and you look, uh, you look in, at, at the gift guide or you look in the sidebar, uh, down there at the bottom of the sidebar on the homepage with the Amazon link is a link to donate uh, to the site via PayPal. We haven't been emphasizing this recently uh, because we've been doing other things. Uh, we wanted to move towards products and we launched the overview line which is awesome and we have a whole new uh, overview of the dark knight rises which we released day and date with the uh the release of the the dvd and blu-ray and streaming uh on amazon and itunes and so on of of, of the dark knight rises so you can you can check that out uh on the homepage of overthinking it but um we still left the the paypal link up on the sidebar i mean why not you know, if someone wants to uh, give a gift of uh, cold hard cash to overthinking it, I'm not going to refuse that. We uh, we appreciate it, and it helps us pay the not inconsiderable server bandwidth, uh, shopping cart software charges. You know, running a website it's not uh, it's not all free. I thought the internet was supposed to make everything free, but uh, as yet, it has not done that. So uh, we got a uh, one hell of a generous donation from Mark L. We want to call him out and say thank you very much for uh, supporting Overthinking It. We're honestly honored that you consider what we do worth supporting. And I want to um, I want to read uh, as just a listener feedback section. I want to read uh, something that um, that Mark sent to us. Mark said, "Ever since I graduated and moved away from my own gang of college overthinking buddies." And especially since we moved to Europe a couple years ago, you guys have filled that gap for me. Most of the people I interact with here don't have the pop culture background for our type of overthinking to make any sense. Uh, You know, just this morning during our Friday coffee time at work, I made a Soylent Green joke and only one person out of about 15 had any idea what I was talking about. Oh. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that, Mark. And I, I, you know, but I'm glad that we can beam via the interweb over to Europe uh, some overthinking and some companionship. So uh, you know, we're- and overthinking it, overthinking it is made out of people. By the way, it's made out of people like you and me. Um, who are crushed by the dystopian cogs of industry and fed again in a sort of redigested form to all of us as sustenance. So, um, so there you go. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> what, too soon? <laughs> too soon? <laughs> we should add that if you, too, make a donation and write us an awesome story, then we'll read it out of the air as well. Um, you could even write some uh, complete nonsense. You could write... Um, you know, uh, uh, epic poetry, even. 
And we'd read that. Epic we'd read an ex- excerpt. Epic poetry is not nonsense. Epic poetry is not nonsense, Mark. That would be excellent. <laughs> no, no, no. By no means I'm implied uh, that, that it was such. But um, yes, uh, if, you give it, if you give a donation, that'd be awesome. We'd, we'd thank you profusely and it would vastly increase the chances of us reading your, uh, your listener feedback. On to the question, I think. It's time. It's <laughs> yes. A, it's been a long sponsor message, but uh, it is the season. I mean, it's, it's pledge drive time, people. I mean, this public radio doesn't come to you for free. Uh, it comes it, to you. It actually kind of does, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> no, but you. I, I mean, the, the the price that you pay is having to endure the occasional pledge drive, and and that's what yeah. we're on. Panel. <clears throat> Gerard Butler uh, is starring in a movie that opened this uh, past weekend. The movie is called Playing for Keeps. It had a perfect zero rating. <laughs> On Rotten Tomatoes. That is to say, every critic hated it, panned it for being formulaic, uh, cynical, borderline misogynistic. Yeah, borderline misogynistic, embarrassing, lousy, sloppy, lazy, undistinguished. I'm just reading adjectives off of the Rotten Tomatoes page at this point. Um, uh, until. One Leonard Malton. (laughs) Oh, man. uh, Filed this review. It won't be up for any Oscars, nor will it score points for originality, but it's harmless enough fair for its target audience. Leonard, way to set the bar low. You are one of our heroes. (laughs) (laughs) So so what is the percentage at now? Like 1%? 2%, yes. 2%. 2%. Okay. Leonard Malton himself is 2% of Rotten Tomatoes. That's good to know. That's good to know. Right. Um, so uh, in honor of this, uh, we invite you, panel, to title Gerard Butler's next uh, romantic comedy. And and if you feel like giving us details um, beyond, uh, beyond the title, uh, feel free. But all we're looking for, all, that, all that's required to clear the bar here is a title. Now I'm going to open the spigot on my Trader Joe's box of wine and stick my lips right underneath it because Peter Fenzel is first in the alphabet. <laughs> Yay. Excellent. So the movie is called Boss Scrumbug and it's it's a Christmas movie, right? It's it's retelling of a Christmas carol where Gerard Butler plays a surly Australian rugby player who doesn't really realize that he's in love with his personal assistant, uh, Barbara Cratchit, played by Drew Barrymore, who has a who is a single mom with a disabled child, right? And so, and as in a sort of Christmas journey for this surly rugby star uh, to finally realize that he's in love with Drew Barrymore. Um, He's visited by a series of ghosts uh, of like Mark Ruffalo and Paul Rudd and like the other protagonists of other romantic comedies, right? Like uh, of like a romance of you know Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, right? Or like Gerard Butler, past, present, and future. That could be cool if it was just his own Christmas Carol and it's like uh, somebody from Gamer, right? And somebody from Three Hundred and whatnot. But no, no, it's uh, it's sort of like Scrooge, but with Gerard Butler getting an opportunity to do a whole bunch of bicep curls before he goes on camera, which is what he loves to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd see that movie. I feel like all you have to do with... I don't know what Playing for Keeps is about. I didn't even know that's what it was called. I, I In fact, I'm a little bit embarrassed that my idea is also sports-themed because I did not know that his latest movie was also sports-themed, uh, which I assume it must be. Um, but yeah, but I, I would see Boss Crumbug, I think. It's a little bit clo- close to make it now. Like You probably have to shoot for next year because it's hard to make that in a week and a half, although I can't imagine this one took much longer. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's what I would go for. I, I, would, I would go for... If you're going to do an athlete romantic comedy, it has to have some other additional hook, some other additional layer. Uh, and I think seasonality would be the good one. Like, do it on July 4th. You know, do it on, uh, you know, do it on Halloween, right? And then all of a sudden, that's what pulls it together. You know, that's what, that's what makes it happen. And a all lot of a sudden, of, you're... And, and a lot yeah. of, like, highly cynical, uh, you know, tear-jerking, put-upon single mom stuff with Drew Mer- Barrymore and her, her disabled child, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, totally. And it's like oh, there's a whole message about like Tiny Tim like learns how to play rugby at one point, even though he can't walk. So he uses like a wheelchair to play wheelchair rugby. So there's sort of like a child murder ball angle. And it's all about how like this. And so it takes a huge left turn in the middle and becomes all about how disabled people can like also they also have that fire within to compete, which is sort of the good side of being a brutal and hopeless misogynist. 
Uh, so they said you have ambition. <laughs> just, just a brief aside on Murderball. If you've never heard of it, it's actually an excellent documentary about mm-hmm. a, a sport that is played in a wheelchair. Uh, that is, uh, I can't quite describe it. It's like a combination of basketball and uh, it's mostly basketball in a wheelchair, right? And it's called Murderball, and it's, it's a great movie. You should check it out. It features mm-hmm. in Murderball. Murderball features in uh, a show that we've talked about on the TFT podcast, Friday Night Lights. Uh, so if you ever want to watch, uh, watch that, you're going to see some Murderball. I mostly cool. like the idea of putting putting a child in a murder ball situation. Um, the, the com- that combination of words really brought me pleasure. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> yeah, sure thing, sure thing. It's you know it hasn't been done yet, so that means it has to happen at some point, right? Like, be the odds approach one as time approaches infinity. So, Mark Lee. Okay, so the phrase that really stuck with me in reading these Rotten Tomatoes reviews, uh, these these capsules, is uh, playing for the lowest common denominator. In other words, um, like just making a movie so bland and so generic that it'll, it tries to appeal to everyone. It has something for everyone, and I, I was starting to think about, well, you know, what is it, you know, the, something that uh, you know that uh, that all Americans have or have in common, um, you know, aside from I don't know a pulse so that could be arguable for some. Uh, but I, of all of all things, my mind was turned to Nick Kristoff's recent column. Um, in which he was describing poverty in America, and he said that nearly all homes have a microwave oven. So, if you're looking Hollywood, if you're looking for your next uh, uh, plot point to meet the lowest common denominator, I suggest microwave ovens, and I've got a great title for you. Um, it's called Defrosting Love. I, I don't know what it's about, but it involves Gerard Butler, uh, microwaves, and love. Defrosting love, not like defrosting his heart or something like that. Oh, it could like, be that. yeah, it could be that deep. But defrosting, de- de- defrosting my heart, defrosting, or like defrosting Diane, like that she's the ice queen. Yeah, there you yeah. go, got it, nailed it. <laughs> Maybe it's defrosting Diane. Diane. Yeah, <laughs> or if you don't, if you want to make it more like less kind of like chauvinistic, we could be like defrosting Daryl, and Daryl is like he's just given up on love. He's never going to fall in love. He just he has his TV dinners in front of the TV every night. He just nukes it up in the microwave, and he doesn't appreciate it. It's like that uh, the Jennifer Aniston movie where she made the food in the freaking pots, right? Didn't she make one of those? <laughs> she was making. Was that, I, mean, I think it was Sarah Michelle Geller that made a. Food. I think they both made movies, romantic comedies, where they were cooking in like in like large scale kitchens. Um, the Sarah Michelle Geller one, I think she had magical powers because the food was influencing people. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Although it makes me think now, this makes me think of that great Onion article where it said that uh, that Stouffer's has decided to put suicide prevention tips on the backs of its uh, microwave. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I, oh, I've, I've eaten a lot wow. of microwave, and I gotta say, like that's not just a joke about microwave food. Like that's a joke about Stouffer's microwave food, which is dark, and you do not, you don't want to like go to the Seven Eleven and like buy the the like chicken lasagna or whatever, and like and, oh, it's so bad, it's so it's so sad and terrible. At least go to Trader Joe's and get some boxed wine on your way home. So, all right, I guess it's there's a- our there's your product placement uh, opportunity there too, Stouffer's in uh, <laughs> what we defrosting Daryl. <laughs> yeah, or something like that. Yeah, nothing comes closer to home, but isn't home. Right? That's what that's the Stouffer's motto. Hey, keep that, think, uh, keep that, uh, keep that product placement off this podcast. I'm getting a lot of money from the Trader Joe's box wine people. <laughs> we do it for free. Like when these people don't give us money to talk about their products, and we're getting like we're gushing ten minute phrase root, like just huge. What's what's the word in for poetry for like poetry that's just just self effa like just total praise of something? El- not not elegiac. That's when they're dead. Um, <laughs> you- <laughs> uh, 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 I you know I don't know. Gosh, I should look that up. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I think it's I think it's my turn. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, my pitch is not for a film. I think Gerard Butler has got to make the move to TV, specifically to a kind of a, a reality-inflected sort of uh, late-night, Skinamax, sort of Red Shoe Diaries-esque series uh, of soft porn, uh, and it's called Butler Does It. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> let, me, let me cast my breath here. Let me cast my breath. <laughs> Two, three... For okay, I caught it. <laughs> uh, so, Pete, what's new in the world of avant-garde theater performance? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So, nice segue. Nice segue, Matt. <laughs> that, that, don't get scared. We're not going to talk just about avant-garde theater performance. We're talking about pop culture. It's a pop culture podcast. But every once in a while, one of us does an artistic project outside of uh, overthinking it, and it seems relevant to talk about it here. And so uh, I know when you did Antoine Fisher, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast, I believe, because um, that was a great movie. And, uh, and I just finished uh, a month-long production, and we just had the last show tonight of in the zone which was a twilight zone themed improv show uh and so i don't know if you guys watched a lot of the old classic twilight zone series but it's one of the great i mean in my opinion it's one of the great television series just one of the great things that television ever did i just love that show it's very brave it's kind of crazy the things that they get away with doing the fact that it's in the late 50s and early 60s if you consider while watching it that it's contemporaneous with Mad Men, it's like kind of insane right <laughs> he's like okay these are like the way that they actually they actually live, and you sort of have this idea of this time as being kind of stultified, and the way that the show is sort of challenging and performatively how it's interesting. So, I mean, I don't know how much of the show you've watched, but for this project, I think what we really wanted to try to find was a. Um, we just finished this month long run of it at this improv theater at Improv Boston, and uh, we wanted to try to find a way of making the audience comfortable with a show where we felt really free to make pretty extreme moves. And also, I should note that uh, Sheely and Cognac from TFT uh, were also in this show. So it, there was some overthinking of pedigree in it. But we wanted to make the audience comfortable with making these kind of big moves and giving ourselves freedom to experiment and doing a lot of kind of. Um, uh, stuff that on other groups people might sort of look at us sideways and be like, this is a little bit much. We want to have that freedom to push the envelope. And also we wanted to try some new things with music design and art direction for the improv show, add a little bit of production value to it, which improv shows often don't have. Uh, and so we you know, hit upon the Twilight Zone because it would make people comfortable with the idea that something was extreme, right? And so um, – and then when we did the show, sure enough, this is what it did, right? It, we were able to take things into pretty crazy, intense directions, uh, and the audience was totally there with us a lot of the time, I think, because they were told kind of in advance it was okay because it was the Twilight Zone. Uh, now, I think this is a big – there's a lesson in here and a lesson. I mean I'm not – I'm sort of posing this as a conversation topic. I'm not saying I've learned it per se, but there's some sort of insight here or core of insight that can be challenged or accepted or what have you or reworded that um, – that when a thing has made it into the pop culture, uh, to the extent that the pop culture is a thing at all, right? I know people see it from different directions or different circles of readership. But when it gets into the pop culture, um, there's a, a degree of alienation and that it loses, right? And there's a degree of acceptance that it gains. And there's a degree in which it's like – it's almost like the Joker at the bedside of Harvey Dent being like it's all part of the plan. Right? It's like, well, if this was on television, then it's all part of the plan and it's okay, even if it, it itself is very weird. And the show was really weird, and I don't think you could get away with putting some of the stuff that they put on there on TV today similarly. I, I think that um, and just in terms of some of the choices about the music and, the, and the, the way that the acting is done, it's all very dated, I know, but it also feels really kind of bizarre, and it feels a little bit like it would scare audiences, and why are you necessarily doing this? Um, but because it was this big first-run show, you know, this big thing, first-run, it's not like it's a movie, but uh, then it's okay, and people will accept it. And and that got me thinking, and the other thing that was true about this production is that we incorporated a bunch of different uh, lessons from avant-garde, well, theater that was avant-garde, and all avant-garde really means is is new, right? Like, theater that was trying to be new, trying to be edgy uh, in, like, the 70s and 80s. Right, and this was mostly viewpointing technique, which came out of modern dance uh, into City Company, most notably, and some other theater companies in that period of time. So we're we're pulling theatrical styles from there, both because they kind of fit the Twilight Zone aesthetic, and because I felt like they would be good for the ensemble. They would kind of spread our faculties and, and kind of get us away from some of the bad habits of conventional improv shows, lead us to some surprising places, surprise ourselves, right, with the things that we would do. But you know, people were watching a show that was in effect a sort of study of an older style of avant-garde theater. Uh, but because it was a Twilight Zone show, they were seeing something that was familiar to them that they could understand. And it really made me think about the relationship between like edgy art, like art that people are like, oh, I don't like modern art. I don't like that art. It's 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 too difficult to understand. Why don't they make art that people just like? Why do they make this stuff that's so lousy? Right? Like the sort of cliche, you know, dad from the sitcom goes to the contemporary art museum and it's just like you know a big toilet. And he's like, what's this? This is an art, you know. And everyone's laughing, laugh track, My kid whatever. Could do that. Exactly. And then the kid like actually pees in the toilet and he like and then that toilet gets like carried away on a cart and it becomes a modern art piece and everyone laughs or whatever. The oh, sitcom my God. Plot. I think you've pitched Gerard Butler his next movie. 
<laughs> in the can. It's called In the Can, and it's about a. <laughs> it's about a relation. Yeah, it's about a guy who can't keep the toilet seat down, uh, but then his toilet seat gets purchased as an avant-garde art piece. Because um, it, it, yeah. Anyway, but anyway, I wanted to pose this as a conversation topic to everybody what your sort of reaction or thoughts are to it. Cause I know that the twilight zone, it's a little dated and it's easy to say, well, the passage of time changes the way that we interpret these things. Of course you can take the twilight zone and turn it into something strange because to us, the twilight zone is strange because it's old. Uh, but I do think that all around us throughout all of our pop culture, there are things that are a lot uh, edgier in their artistic pedigree than their target market, the way that they're framed in the discourse uh, would really indicate to us, like let us know, like clue us into. They don't want us to know. They don't want us to see the strings, right? They don't want us to see what's going on in the backgrounds of these shows. And and so, you know, the relationship between you know, what was or is the avant-garde and what was or is the mainstream uh, has become complex, much like with mashups in music, right? It's like, Things that music that was utterly conventional uh, the first time around feels edgy and cool when you cut and, and chop and mix it up and stuff like that, right? Like everything old is new again. But um, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone on for a little bit. I, I know that, that um, Matt, did you have anything to say on the topic? I know Mark is probably like, oh, these guys with their stupid humanity stuff. Can't we talk about some graphs? Uh, and I don't have any graphs right now for this, but I'll work on some. They'll be like abstract in four dimensions. They'll be hypergraphs. I wanted to. I, I mean, I wanted to 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 sort of pose a question. Do, do you think there is uh, an avant-garde in American art? I mean, especially in American dramatic art. And by dramatic art, I mean movies and TV as well as you know the theater, because that's where most people get their get their dramatic storytelling is on screen. Um, is uh, is there really an avant-garde? Uh, not just not just in terms of what is the latest trend, but in terms of a a, a sort of you know, a, a sort of uh, provocative, uh, bold frontier, exper- experimental frontier that is designed to sort of shock or unsettle um, the the uh, you know the standards of the day. Do, well, is it necessary? Is about okay. knowing a lot about this. I mean, were we just talking about uh, something that really fits this bill on the podcast not too long ago? Cloud Atlas. Well, yeah, Cloud Atlas tries to be on the edge, right? It tries to be this thing that's pushing the envelope. Um, I mean, the degree to which it's successful is debatable, but I think that it's a good indicate. It's a good that see that's one way of doing it, though. I, it's like there's two ways of doing it. I think. Wait, I mean, because we we plus- I don't, I, I don't necessarily grant that. I'm not sure that cl- that Cloud Atlas. I mean, you know, Cloud Atlas. What, the story was chopped up, but like Quentin Tarantino did that, you know, uh, mm. in a much better movie. A while ago, and and I mean, he was actually aping uh, a lot of his idols in the French New Wave, and and um, you know, and so on. So it's, a, I mean, it's not like it's a new idea. I mean, where was the new idea in Cloud Atlas? Yeah, it was a little hard to follow, and yeah, it was kind of plotting and and pretentious, and and I mean, you know, by pretentious, I, I mean that literally. I mean, it was pretending right to a level of significance it didn't actually earn. Uh, but I, you know, I'm I'm not sure that either of these things. Um, qualifies as being being sort of avant-garde it, 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 in the terms of the definition uh that that i've given or even just the simple definition of being new yeah now what i ask you noted that in your definition this is just a point of clarification uh that it is designed to shock right uh is that necessarily a, a quality an intrinsic quality of something being avant-garde, like a synthetic a priori quality of being avant-garde, is that it it is designed to shock people? Or is that simply one of the more predominant ways in which people have sought to achieve the avant-garde, whatever that is? Right? That's one of the more – because there was so much – I mean, what might be called design space, right? There's so much artistic space in these ideas of shock because it was such a big it, – it's such an indivisible thing to do. I like to, to put lots of nudity or, you know, alternative sexual lifestyles or, you know, ethnicity stuff, like stuff that was social taboo, putting that on stage at one point was shocking, right? And so for a long time, you could sort of work out a lot of mileage by being shocking. But is every avant-garde movement necessarily shocking? I, I'm, I'm asking sincerely. I don't know. Um, no, maybe maybe shock isn't the right word, but sort of the idea of, of an avant-garde is to what? I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a more... 
uh, a less normative word, right? Like a, a more like more unsettle is that yeah, or, or? or disrupt. Uh, disrupt, right. okay. and it's not because it's not necessarily one kind of disruption is shock. Uh, it's a it's shock is a moral disruption is like an individual moral disruption, but there's also like disruption of an artistic tradition, you know, that an avant garde can aim at, or disruption of a you know certain kinds of social patterns or something like that 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 an avant garde can aim at, and I I, I think that like the idea of sort of formal experimentation kind of goes hand in hand with a often i guess i don't know is it a synthetic a priori quality of an avant-garde gosh i'm you load you load it with so many uh yeah that's that's so freighted there's so much baggage there that i i feel like i can't yeah, yeah. i can't make a pronouncement Drop a couple of the words if you want yeah <laughs> but is it i mean do, do i think that the do i think that along with the aesthetic mission of of sort of finding new forms uh there's often a social mission of disrupting um, uh, a social or or artistic project of disruption. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 is that is sort of one of the functions of an avant garde. Right, right, right. Okay, so cool. I just I want to make sure that I that I'm on the same page with that. And I guess I mean, it's not hard to even if something it's not hard to see any artistic work as disruptive in some way because conversations are sort of re, you know replace every conversation replaces the past in some way and we move forward from there i guess but uh so i i see what you mean okay so shocking is something that's good i do think that um that there is a sort of self-conscious social uh social messaging in art that has become very pedestrian that i think people sometimes see as more avant-garde than it is right uh, and, and I think that this is this is largely present in like the large regional theater houses and in the sort of programs of new works theaters, which are of course not a major piece of the money that's spent on the arts, right? But it's like, oh, here's a play about what my experience was like growing up as an ex, right? And it's like an ex is whatever identity political thing hasn't been explored yet. And I don't want to belittle these people's experiences, but I'm I am by saying this. But it's just like it's not that special, right? Like it's like the the, the play has been made so many times in so many different functions. I remember like 10, gosh, like seven years ago when I was working back in New York, I worked for a theater service organization. And in the break room, there would be like postcards for the different shows that people were involved in that worked there because everybody did shows at night. And, uh, and I think at one point it was like four different ethnicities were all like involved in these like confessional one person shows, right? It's like, oh, do you want the Afghan woman or do you want the Korean American guy? Like, or do you want the person who's kind of, you know, who's, who's, who's trans identified? But, you know, and it's like, which one of these, you know, pick one do you want to do? And I'm like, they're probably all similar shows in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, and you know what? Honestly, they, they probably are more like your average coming of age show, right. Then, yeah. then they are like, you know, anything. Yeah. Anything yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, mean this, I'm not to belittle this. Yeah. But go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. But I, I think like, I, so it's, I mean, it's, it's very interesting though, because I think it's important that these, uh, the, the function of the, of the ethnicity there is in, in a certain sense to flatter the audience, right. That yeah. is to say, you get to stand as an audience member, as an observer of the show, right? Um, you get to stand on the side of the angels by by sympathizing, right? By yeah. by this kind of very, if considered in the abstract, this very patronizing um, kind of act of like pitying, you know, the the person who's undergoing whatever indignities are are being visited upon him or her. Um, or whatever you know, difficult uh, um, struggles that you know this person is going through uh, by sort of acknowledging this and like sort of soberly nodding your head and sort of you know you you um, get to have your picture of yourself. Uh, your kind of self-image as being a, you know, right-thinking, sympathetic, uh, you know, sensitive, um, non-bigoted, right? Like, wh- whatever is important to you, like, like enlightened person, uh, flattered. Um, yeah. And so, uh, which, is, which is different from your average uh, coming-of-age story, uh, where, where, you don't necessarily, where you don't necessarily get that. Um, yeah, so that that like, uh, uh, well, sorry, I I could go in a lot of directions, but Pete, no, yeah, what, I, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I would say is like to to sort of close off that tranche, I would say, 
Um, it's a good thing that those stories are becoming more pedestrian because it's they shouldn't be fringy. Right. Like it shouldn't be a huge shock that someone tells a story about an Afghan woman or Afghan. I don't know what, what adjectival form to use because I heard one time not to use Afghani because it's the name of the money or something. The woman from Afghanistan. It shouldn't be shocking. Like Persepolis. Right. To put it in the context of something some people listening to the podcast have, have watched. Persepolis should not. It should not be shocking that Persepolis exists. Right. It should be edgy that Persepolis exists. It can be seen as brave because the people it depicts are being brave. Right. But in that sense, that's also kind of the marketing. Uh, it's always like a melodramatic kind of marketing that's very old where it's like, oh, you can feel the thing that the people are feeling that are in this story. And I don't want to belittle it, but I'm saying it's not like progressive and edgy and avant-garde it's not it's not really trying to blaze new ground to something people are uncomfortable with right right but, but it's also it exerts a lot of, of energy in the places in america in particular where the avant-garde used to be found and i'm sort of trying to respond to your question because it's a, it's a you really asked a tough question like what is the what is avant-garde today i mean do you we can get have, up on- i mean and and it's actually my question was do we have one and I, i'm not sure i mean i'm not sure that we do uh I'm not sure that we have an avant-garde the way we had an avant-garde in the 20s with with modernism, right? Like, right. I'm not sure yeah. that anyone stands in the relation to an artistic tradition that, you know, I don't know, that, that Eliot stood in, right? Or, or yeah. Ezra Pound or something. Um, not that, right. I mean, he's a troubling figure from history, but, but just sort of aesthetically, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... To make sure I'm parsing what you're saying correctly, and I might be totally misinterpreting, so please correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you're saying that um, once we sort of broke through the certain barrier, uh, you know, and sometime in the 20th century of like you know shattering all these notions of uh, uh, of sort of what is uh, you know what is appropriate to, to show in in theater, uh, then after that, then there's sort of nothing else to be done. Like we sort of are we crossed the final frontier of sorts when uh, when John Cage like you know made his music with like you know playing like with with <laughs> like opposing music that is not music at all. No, I mean I wouldn't say that. Well, yeah, I wouldn't I mean, say that. I mean maybe is, we would say that rather. But no, I mean this is this is just we're talking about dramatic. We're talking about dramatic art in in music. I think you can probably still find an avant-garde. I don't really listen to that stuff, but I'll bet Jordan would be able to tell us a lot about it. Uh, Stokes, overthinker Jordan Stokes would be able to tell us a lot about it. And in art, you know, I think that, uh, well, I don't know, though, like, I kind of, what do you do after Damien Hirst, like, you know, carved a shark up or something? But, uh... <laughs> you know. Well, that whole, that's, a whole, that's a whole story in and of itself, those kinds of really expensive, big exhibitions of, not found objects, but whatever is close to that, right? Like, those installations that have were at one point shocking, but are now just kind of elaborate. And um, and the jo- and the joke seems to be. I mean, the joke seems to be in, or the like, the provocation, the the disruption seems to be in. Like, wait, look look at us. Look at what we are spending. You know, millions of pounds sterling on, right? Like to to buy yeah. and to put in the Tate Modern and to mm-hmm. um, you know yeah. to exhibit to exhibit for one another. But no, here's. Yeah. I mean, uh, here's wh- what I think. Here's where I think it went. I mean, I think that that, um, and I'm I'm indebted a lot to to David Simon for kind of opening my eyes to this. And in in an interview um, that I can't remember the interview, but I remember well what he said, which was that most of our entertainment seeks to comfort the comfortable um, mm-hmm. and to sort of to mock the afflicted. And he was talking about cop shows, right? And he was talking about uh, uh, cop shows where in this kind of very triumphalist, uh, this sort of triumphalist move, um, the, the black perpetrator, the black suspect is sort of run down by a bunch of white cops and handcuffed. And like this, this moment of righteous violence is, is you know, depicted in the, the, this order restoring uh, ritual, right? Like... And uh, he was talking about uh, he was talking about the wire and why the wire um, doesn't uh, didn't do arrest scenes right didn't do the the kicking down the door scenes. Uh, there's one, um, actually two. There's the the uh, well I don't want to give spoilers for the wire, um, but uh, <laughs> there's two. There's there's uh, one involving I can't even do it. Uh, I, I can't even do it. But. Well, just just to say that there's a couple of them, but they they are contextualized. Yeah, they're con- they're they're contextualized, and one has a music cue 
but it has right of the Valkyries playing during it. You yeah. know, it doesn't give, I mean, it doesn't give anything away to say that, that that's the soundtrack. Right. And so that is so heavily ironized uh, at yeah. that point that you, you can't, you sort of can't enjoy it as a piece of like, yeah, kick the bad guys asses, you know? Um, the, I'll that accept point? that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> one thing, the one thing I would say, uh, in addition to all that, I mean, it was that um, the big, the big change from the sort of Elliot Ezra Pound era, I think that that Matt's talking about, is I don't think it's that they ran out of things to do. I think it's that uh, th- we were still very much in a culture of the major cities at the time. Right, like what was happening in London, what was happening in Paris, what was happening in New York. Like these were things that pushed art, and so thus, if you were seriously involved in these things, in a level that got recorded in the history books, kind of ex post facto, you kind of knew a lot of the same people, and you were kind of influenced and influence influencing a lot of the same people, right? And so you know we can say, oh look at this circle. If you look at the micro history of modernism, there's a ton of personal relationships, like the letters back and forth. Between Pound and Frost is a good example, right? The the you know the one everybody hope I hope everybody if you don't know and you want to check out is you know Pound's edits to the Wasteland, right? Like that's a huge example. That's like an eye opener for a lot of people who come across it. You know, when I was like a teenager, about like oh you know this is a whole group of people. This is not a work that's just produced by one person just dreaming it up. Like there's a whole group and, and social organizations around it. So I mean I would say that there have been a lot of things that happened through the 20th century and in the 21st century that have tried to kind of push the envelope in various different kinds of art. Um, but it, it's like each individual group of people has the potential to push its own understanding of art a little bit in a particular direction. Uh, and, and we don't, we're not aware of everybody else. We're not as judged by everybody else. Like, like for example, a show that I might say might be a bit, might be avant-garde would be whoever was the first person to figure out to edit out the short snippets in YouTube videos Right. So that every like there's no breaths and it just sort of goes right. Like when I think about my sister watching the Fred, the Fred thing, right, Fred on YouTube, the guy who talks like this and, he, and he's this, you know, kid who's pretending to be a smaller kid and, and everything is sort of hyperactive. There's definitely something in there that was disruptive and destructive to other kinds of scripted entertainments, which is perhaps why Fred has never caught on as a as much as a mainstream entertainment as he did as a YouTube character. Uh, I might be incorrect at that. If we have any 12 year olds in the podcast listening, <laughs> feel free to chime in on the podcast podcast um because fred kind of kind of age out of fred after a little while but uh are you guys know what i'm talking about when i talk about fred no no this is new to me this is disruptive uh, okay. and shocking to me <laughs> has your mind been blown uh no it was a, it was a youtube series it's like whatever youtube trots out its big stars which it tries to do occasionally which it never really you know it didn't really have the purpose that it was supposed to have, I guess. I mean, I'm sure it does it, to a degree. It's like, oh, look, YouTube has developed stars. But there's this one guy who's gone on to do a couple movies. I don't have this Wikipedia entry in front of me. But he had a web series where he sort of bl- vlogged. You know, but the vlog was a form of a somewhat intimate conversation that he was having with the viewer, right? And he was like a, you know, 15-year-old or 16-year-old kid pretending to be like a 12- or 13-year-old kid. And he sped up his voice so that it was higher, in in uh, frequency, and so that was and that was sort of his novel thing, and and he would be expressing a lot of anxiety about his relationships and the people that he had crushes on and stuff, and he would run around his house and he would shoot himself from different angles, um, and there was just sort of a it was a way of relating to video that I hadn't seen before. Right, like in the excitement that my little sister, because at the time she was little, now she's in college, but when this was happening, she was littler. When she was relating to it, the level of enthusiasm and intimacy she seemed to have connecting with this art, like that seemed to me to be disruptive of her relationship with like the, the secret lives of Zach and Cody, right? Which is like a Disney, old Disney Channel show about twins, right? Which is they've done a bazillion of those things. Um, but it's like once you've seen somebody watching Fred, they're not going to be watching, you know, High School Musical exactly the same way. Uh, they're going to be. Ex- Expecting this greater degree of connection with the not even connection, but this the way that the form creates this makes this happen. Um, yeah, if I had the Wikipedia in front of me, I'd get you all sorts of answers, but I'm still technologically impaired right now. Um, but I think some people know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I mean, I would say that's something. I mean, I would say the viewpoint stuff in the 70s and 80s, not you know shattering, but you know, I, I mean, that's the theater stuff. You take the thing out of modern dance, you put it into theater, right? And that's that's kind of shocking, you know. Like, there's something disruptive about that. But a lot of people are never going to encounter it, and so it's hard to say that it's really pushed the envelope in a huge way because it's, it's very niche. 
and, and, and you can go you can encounter it without even knowing that you've encountered it is the other thing. And that's kind of another tricky part about these sorts of innovations these days. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, the, because it's it's unclear what the what the pedigree is. I mean, I've said a lot as someone yeah. who works in theater that I think Broadway theater has more in common with avant garde performance art than it does with kind of middle-of-the-road dramatic storytelling that you expect on your sort of hour-long dramas or something like that, if you really kind of can bracket and consider in abstraction what goes on uh, on stage in a Broadway musical and just the, the, the level of spectacle and the kind of level of artificiality, the extremely high level of, of artifice, uh, you are, you know, you're in the presence of something that is more like uh, well, like I say, more like performance art, right? Than it is like um, your average episode of of uh, oh, Law and Order. For Law and Order. Yeah, I mean, one one show I'm watching right now, which is an older show and certainly not a remarkable show in terms of it's one of many in a genre. It's nice, I like it so far. Uh, is I'm watching the show Farscape on Netflix streaming right now, right? Which is if you enjoy the space action hours of the mid to late '90s and early 2000s. This one's from, I believe, Australia, I think, based on everybody's accents. Uh, but it involves Jim Henson's puppet studio is working with them, right? And so there's aliens that are puppets. And so this this show, the most notable thing about the show and its initial impression is the real the art direction is like really aggressive. And the the aliens are kind of very, very sensualized in like body paint and the and the puppets are kind of very like like material and dent and there's a very tactile sense to this world as it's imagined. And and then when I consider it next to, you know, other kinds of shows from the time, like, you know, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, right? Or like Babylon Five a little bit earlier on, there there's something that feels more provocative about it. It's not quite as as sketchy as Lex is, but even then it's like I'm like, okay, like the way that this character is kind of playing her part, she's clearly using certain principles from from modern dance, right? And like the way that and like I was at that, you know, the party a couple weeks ago I was talking about the fundraiser at the Gowanus Ballroom and like, you know, in, in various, you know, art collective and art spaces, you know, you see a lot of people with body paint now as a thing, I guess, you know, like you know, phosphorescent body paint just hanging out is something that artsy people or the kids are doing these days, I guess. Um, and that feels connected to this like cheesy sci-fi show. So it feels, it feels like things that are happening in certain circles are kind of rippling across different kind of very conventional media. Like that's what I was talking about when I was talking about the Twilight Zone stuff. But it's like you'll only really see it if you're privy to that conversation that's happening in that place. Because um, otherwise you, there's so much of a fire hose now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a river. Right. It's not like this big, you know, it's not like the national guitar we talked about when we were going to Graceland a couple weeks ago. Right. Like it's um, it's not like the, the, the strains of the country are being played by a river of culture and imagination that's flowing through our heartland. You know, like we are, you know, we're not marching into the fire hoses because, again, we don't want to belittle the civil rights movement. We already said that once. And that metaphor doesn't really quite fit the circumstances. But it definitely feels like you're being hit by a huge torrent of information, a torrent, right? Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways. And it's, it's hard to identify the avant-garde when you don't know what norm it's challenging, whose norm it's challenging. And especially because of confirmation bias, because we know that there are so many norms out there. I mean, for all I know, there were people who were reading Elliot in, you know, Cincinnati, right? We're saying things about Elliot nobody else was saying, but we would never have any reason to ever believe we would ever hear about it. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't know how legitimate that is as a claim to things, but it seems strange that all of a sudden people all over the world have a lot more to say about everything than they did in some of the texts that we study as, as in the earlier periods in artistic history, even as recently as a generation or two ago. Info dump. <laughs> <laughs> Info dump. Boom. If anyone wants Boom, boom. I mean, can you think, does this, does this, is there anything to this parallel? Are we so lost in the weeds in the search for the avant-garde that this trying to draw a connection between at least thinking that you're being a performance artist in some way or you're being edgy artistically in some way and then kind of burying that in a pop culture property? Like, is that a legitimate experience that we can talk about? Because I feel like it must feel that way sometimes, even if there is really nothing new that's happening. Wait, I don't, I don't follow you. That, that we feel like there's something new that's happening even when we don't, even when there is not, yeah. in fact, something new that's happening? 
Yeah, I mean, we just sort of we sort of have have talked about and torn up a couple of different things that would purport to be edgy, or purport to be new, or purport to be avant garde, and we're like, well, it's not really new. It all goes back to the French New Wave. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, I'm that guy. Congratulations. Um, but it's not- <laughs> Um, you know, and it's like, well, everybody, I mean, I just got Instagram this week and I feel like I'm going to do all the douchey things that everybody got when they first got Instagram, like four years ago or whatever, everyone got it. Right. It's like, I'm going to make all the same experimental mistakes that everybody else made. They're new to me. Like they feel new to me, but I know that they're like totally, totally contrived and douchey at this point. Um, and you know what I mean? And I feel like there's a perspective that you have on the art that you're making where you feel like you're doing something that is, that is outside of the bounds of what would be acceptable or knowable. It feels disruptive. It feels like you're pushing the envelope, but you may not be pushing the envelope at all. And you would have no way of knowing it. Well, that's, Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you think about this. Maybe you'll disagree violently with me and I'll, I'll sort of welcome the argument if you do, but the, um, uh, it seems to me that, like, as an artist, as a serious artist, as someone who actually wants not not just to sort of either make a living or sort of spend your time and in entertainment or community theater or you know uh, a garage band or whatever, right? Like, but as a, as a person who actually feels like you would like to move the art form forward, I, there's a an obligation I think that you have to sort of learn to to educate yourself as to the to the history of your of your art, right? Um, yeah. I think uh, we had a teacher, Pete and I both had a teacher in college who taught uh, writing poetry, which is a class that Pete and I both took in college um, back when such things seemed uh, not only possible, but like a good idea. And <laughs> the, um, you know, uh, and and he, he uh, this teacher whose name was, is John Hollander, uh, this teacher would would say, at least he said in my class, Pete and I were never in it together. Um, you should never degrade or criticize, um, the first steps someone takes in an art form simply because they're first steps, you know, that is to say you have to, you, there, there's an, a, a learning curve and you have to go through it. And it's, you know, um, if you're, if your first poem sounds like a Hallmark card, but hey, you've learned how to write accentual syllabic verse, then great. You've learned how to write accentual <laughs> syllabic verse and no one, no one should, uh, you know, should get down on you um, because that's what you were doing. But you should also not get stuck, right, in, in first steps. You shouldn't get stuck doing the early mistakes uh, or the early, the sort of early experiments that you do when you're feeling, uh, feeling out what your resources are as an artist. And I mean, it strikes me that, that we have an art that is sort of, um, that is sort of stuck aesthetically, right? Like in, in a, in a, in a kind of conventional, in in a kind of paradoxically conventional, um, uh, you know, attempted at provocation, right? Um, in, in and which art are you talking about when well, you say we have an art? Well, I, I'm really talking about Lena Dunham's Girls. <laughs> <laughs> right now, we're now we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, right now, we're reprising the subject of the of the podcast that got us the most uh, negative comments and hate mail ever in in the thing. But I mean, it's it strikes me that like this is the th- like because isn't it edgy? <laughs> yeah, are you not edged? <laughs> you know that that right? Like, um, but there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing. You know, I, I I probably think she's a better writer than a lot of our audience seems to, based on the comments we got that time we talked about her show. But uh, uh, you know, but it isn't. I mean, isn't that show edgy? Is this not a perfect example of the kind of thing that that we're talking about that has this sort of superficial pose of of being avant garde, of being ahead of the, the you know ahead of the guard, <laughs> right? Um, but. But it kind of reveals uh, re- reveals upon further analysis a, a, a sort of conventionality. 
I think it does. I think I think it's a great girls is a great example because I think one thing after di- like digesting all of the nonsense that happened around our girls podcast and like the one time I tried to watch three episodes of that show and then proceeded to embarrass myself uh, in a series of conversations about it. Uh, the one thing that really stuck with me was that the show and the experience of the show was very different from the experience of the social media discourse around the show, right? And um, it kind of reminds me of the not adage, but conventional wisdom that, you know, you won't know who the great artists are until after they're dead. Right. And so one of the things that that in terms of girls having a claim on edginess, which it doesn't even necessarily assert to Lena Dunham, but it certainly does to a lot of people who talk about it. Um, it's really tied up in contemporary political issues, like really tied up in contemporary political issues uh, and, and people's, you know, trying to assert different narratives around different ideas of, you know, who should be the hero or protagonist and the stories that we're hearing and what kind of behavior should we praise versus condemn. Like these are all questions that are very rooted in immediate needs. Right. It's like I, I am trying to deal with the fact that, you know, there is like this problem uh, with this kind of abuse in like these kinds of like universities. Right. And like, and like this is something I'm very immediately concerned with. And my efforts to fix this have been sidetracked by people who are trying to reframe the narrative as if this is my fault. Right. And like, and like I'm fighting a battle. Like I'm not necessarily like it's, it, there's a there's a discussion. There's the I mean, I guess I'm taking us back full circle to this question of of um, of disrupting or unsettling versus the other kind of conventional wisdom that, you know, that art art has difficulty really interacting with with politics in this way, um, which I guess. And the more the more that I think about it, the more I see the world we live in, the less I feel like that's even remotely plausible, right? This idea that art changes nothing, right? Because it's it get, becomes this huge political football. It doesn't change things the way you want them to. Well, but what I'm what I'm basically, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the quote is the uh, poetry makes nothing happen, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what, what I'm what I'm boiling it down to saying is that it's going to be really. I think that we can look back once we've kind of extricated ourselves a little bit from the really pressing political issues of our current day and generation, like maybe our kids, you know, if we have kids, none of us on the podcast have children right now, but if that were to happen, you know, in some sort of crazy future circumstance, um, I'm sure, you know, let's, we'll not get into that. Uh, if those kids were to look back, they might have a very different perspective on what envelopes were really being pushed. Right. And that like, may be, like, I mean, that may be actually, that may be the thing, the, the unique feature of our time is that the, any statement, any sort of, uh, entry into the into the sort of artistic discourse, right, or sort of entertainment discourse, is so quickly surrounded with um, a very quickly generated interpretive material, right? That that it it may be that we we call the game too early. Right. Uh, as as commentators on things like this, that is, we we make claims uh, that we, we write checks that are ass can't cash uh, with our tweets. I mean, there, there's this whole reality that we really have to assimilate about behavioral metrics and the role of behavioral metrics in art. Right. And, and this idea that um, so much of what happens because, you know, these artists, works of art don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in the context of the time that they're produced and the people who read them and stuff, you know, whatever, granted. Um, but but like, you know, even if we were it's like it's we're at the point now where it's kind of absurd to talk about the record sales of an album. Right. Because those aren't the metrics that are even going to matter. It, 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 there's so many other metrics that people are tracking around the penetration of a message or, you know, the, the, how many retweets did you get is like the super duper baseline, right? Like, um, you know, if, like, if you heard about the, um, Beck's new album, I just heard about this. Do you guys hear about this? How Beck is releasing a new album entirely of sheet music and like an old timey bound volume produced by the McSweeney's people. And there's no recording of it to go with it. It's just sheet music. Um, and it's like, okay, well, what metrics is this thing going for? Yeah, sure. Sales of the actual book, but it's like, okay, who's going to play this music? Who's going to have engagement points with this music? When is this music going to be repeated by people who are listening to it? And there are so many people whose jobs it is to track and respond immediately to behavioral metrics across different areas of commerce. And it's really affecting our art and being affected by our art. And I think that there isn't really, as far as I know, like a great work 
that contextualizes and explains behavioral metrics and the relationship between behavioral metrics and work in the same way as say like, you know, the Odyssey explains an epic, right? Or like, uh, you know, or like, yeah, how, how would I say? Like, um, I mean, I'm not the huge, the hugest novel buff in the world, but like, what would be an example of a novel that you feel like the reading of this novel kind of explains what novels are and what novels are trying to do? Don Quixote. Right. I, without, Don, yeah. Yeah. Or like, especially, if you want Especially to, the second part of Don Quixote, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you, I, I feel like. There's a room in our culture right now for a work that does to the, the sort of arts interaction with the Twitterverse what, like, Don Quixote did for novels, which is sort of, like, start them, right, but also kind of explain them uh, and offer people a way of understanding them. Because um, it, it's, it's hard to even get a grasp on what's happening. I mean, I keep – I mean, you know, and I'm really, t- I'm really connected – not connected, but um, tied up in a lot of gamer culture sometimes, which is a terrible, terrible place to be, by the way. And I do, can't recommend it to anyone. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the rise of Twitch, which, again, I mentioned a couple years ago as my big thing I was excited for in the pop culture. The rise of video game streaming as an art form, right? The idea that you have, like – charitable drives where people are going to play video games on the internet and you can watch them on video on video play video games you can pledge and like you know i feel like that's so fundamentally different than the kinds of entertainment that i used to watch when i was a kid like it's so fundamentally different from like nintendo power but i don't feel like i have any way any sort of like really grounded way to to get across people what this means because the best way i think to I mean, there's you can you can come up with an explanation like you can do the preface of the lyrical ballads right is a great example of Wordsworth and Coleridge of a work that sets out to explain an artistic movement and does so right and it's like this is a, a the poetry that's a preface to a book of poetry it explains romanticism you give it to kids they read it they understand it great awesome but then there are also the works of art that kind of by example explain what they're trying to do I mean I guess maybe like the 100th episode of the day nine daily where he like cries about his life in starcraft is probably like the most the sort of most major work of video game streaming i guess <laughs> uh, but it's like yeah and i mean i know people would disagree and say that oh just to sort of be a devil's advocate that a, a great works approach to literature is is less about the way that the literature is you know ought to function or could usefully usefully function and more about like putting people in charge of it Right, but who is the person? Who is the authority? Right, who is the hegemon of this particular sort of art? Um, I mean, I would say I would look at like Homer and be like, well, no, it's actually really good. <laughs> like, it's not just about who is in charge. Um, but we couldn't even do that now because people would fight. They would fight so much for the person who got the chance to articulate this that I feel like in our lifetimes we would not be able to settle on what actually did the deed. You know, like, and it would have to do with stuff that would not matter. You know, 30 years from now, you know, hopefully 30 years from now, gay marriage doesn't matter. It's just normal. It's done. You know, it's not a big deal. Right. And like I I was reading a thread recently where it's like, what things do you think our children are going to be shocked by? This is a Reddit thread. Someone's like, I think people will be shocked in 50 years by homophobia. And I was like, I think in 50 years, people will not care. Uh, they will not even know, and they will be kind of quizzical that it existed, just as you know they're quizzical about the the sort of anti-Irish prejudices that like you know. <laughs> people are like, oh my god, they used to be so mean to the Irish. It's like no, they, they people are like what? Why would they do that? And maybe fifty years is too short a time horizon for that, but it's like you know what I mean. It's like you sort of hope that these things that so get in the way uh, of kind of identifying what is new. Which is like the argument about what matters. Yeah, but the, the, I mean, there's a flip side of that, which is that the the otherization like always moves on. You know, like there, there's always there the outgroup. You know, is always is always defined, right? Like once once it's not the Irish, then it's the the. Uh, I don't know. Italians were before the Irish, weren't they? Then it's the Poles or something, right? Like it's. <laughs> Uh, you know, when when it's no longer gay people, it's it, it's gonna be someone else. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who you know, you That's, know what I mean? Like I don't know people with people who don't play StarCraft or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we could we could speculate about the prejudices of the future, but we have enough to deal with with the prejudices of the present. <laughs> we should um, we should make a uh, we should make a, a self important work of avant garde contemporary theater about that. 
I already did. <laughs> it was also a work of improvisational comedy. <laughs> well, I no, think it's... we've I think we've come full circle. So uh, you want to join the uh, you want to join the conversation about the avant garde. Uh, you want to join the conversation about um, whether anything is uh, edgy. You want to suggest a new romantic comedy for Gerard Butler. Um, <laughs> Right, uh, you can uh, email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can call or text two zero three two eight five six four zero one, or you can do what most people do and join the uh, excellent conversations that we have in the comments on the show notes for this episode. Remember to use that uh, Amazon affiliate link if you are uh, buying stuff for yourself or your friends and loved ones for this uh, holiday season. Uh, We'll be back next week with another Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. We are nihilists, Lebowski. Sorry I tailed off on all that conversation about uh, avant-garde theater. Uh, I was busy shopping for microwaves on Amazon.com. <laughs> Guys, if you, here's, the, here's a crazy thing that I've been dealing with all week watching this Farscape stuff. You listen to the theme song of Farscape, and you tell me that it's not a Kesha song. Just like <laughs> there's this there's this weird robo voice going like ah, and I'm like oh man, Kesha would have been all over that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, Kesha, you know, talk about the avant-garde, right? Women drinking whiskey or brushing their teeth with it. <laughs> and, and feeling like P. Diddy? Nobody feels like P. Diddy. That's highly disruptive. <laughs>